We are back. I think to lighten our, our load just a little bit today, I would refer to a helpful email sent to us by Elise, which posed the question, what if the person who named walkie-talkies named other objects? Would the fork have been the stabby-grabby? Would a pregnancy test have been labeled the maybe-baby? Would defibrillators be called hardy-starties? We just don't know. And before we take another turn back into bad stuff, I think we should throw in some good news items for today's program. Here's a few. The Nobel Prize-winning Filipino journalist Maria Ressa was acquitted last week of tax evasion charges that could have sent her to jail for 34 years. Ressa, a former CNN correspondent, runs the independent news outlet Rappler, which published critical investigations into human rights violations under former President Rodrigo Duterte. His government retaliated by revoking Rappler's publishing license and prosecuting Ressa on numerous trumped-up charges. Did Bongbong Marcos, the new president of the Philippines, have a hand in this? Well, we don't know. If he did, we say, bravo, Bongbong. Something we hope we'll be able to say again. Here's some further good news. Uh, It's noted that China has experienced its first population decline since Mao's Great Leap Forward, which reduced the population by causing by widespread famine 60 years ago. The Chinese government said this week that 9.56 million people were born last year and 10.41 million died. China had tried to forestall such a drop by lifting the one-child policy in 2016 and offering incentives for families to have children. Now, why they'd be panicking over a loss of 800,000 total In a nation that's got 1.4-something billion people, we don't know. Except that economists just are unable to resolve the issue of how you can run an economy without having an ever-expanded pyramid of humans. Evidently, the Chinese are no better at that than other economists. At this juncture, we refer you back to one of our favorite quotes in this program, that from David Attenborough, who noted that anyone who believes in infinite growth in a finite world is either insane or an economist. And here's one I especially like. It appears that the hole in the ozone layer is on course to heal up completely. Well, when they say that, they mean it should recover to 1980 levels by the year 2040 across most of the globe and by 2066 over the worst affected region, which is Antarctica. All I can say to that is, God, I hope so. And I also hope that the level of CFCs, which are the compounds that are causing all the trouble with the ozone layer really have plummeted 99 percent since the 1989 Montreal Protocol set forth reductions in in their production. And there's a little good news item which I I found in a piece that was in New Scientist three years ago. The article was titled 10 Years to Save the World. The subheadline noted that our actions of the coming decade will shape the future of life on earth. Tempted to uh to strike an optimistic tone. In the article, which was a Q&A involving some uh, environmental scientists, 
The question was put that despite a big rise in social pressure, we still haven't reduced emissions. Why not? I was intrigued by the answer, to which UN strategist Tom Rivett Karnak responded, The relationship between civil engagement and political change is nonlinear. You push, you push, and you push, and nothing happens. And then it suddenly shifts. Extinction Rebellion talks about this a lot. I believe that's the Greta Thunberg organization, saying that once you reach about 3.5% of a population that is actively engaging in a particular issue and pushing for it consciously, consistently, and publicly, then there's never been a scenario where a group like that has failed to achieve its objectives, whether that's the women's suffrage or civil rights movements or the end of colonialism. There are very positive and encouraging signs that the political winds are now moving in this direction. No, we don't know if if that stat is correct. We hope it is. We hope he's right. But I'm fascinated by the idea of, of of a turning point when you reach a certain percentage pushing for something that all of a sudden makes it happen. I wonder. I confess to having some doubts about this, having seen back in 2002 when we were in the early days of this program how the world's largest demonstrations ever Largest demonstrations ever, in this case, against the U.S.'s impending war against Iraq, erupted all across the globe, and we had a war in Iraq anyway. Of course, this caused me to look back in horror in a moment when I was talking to a friend, and I was complaining bitterly about how it was we were having this ridiculous war against Iraq, to which my friend responded, oh yeah, it's terrible, but you know, when I saw those towers coming down... I thought we're going to have to fight back. Tried to add, but we weren't attacked by Saddam Hussein on (sighs) 9-11. Let's move on. I want to refer to an article in front of me that is so bad that I took a look at it and thought, if this is where we're going, what use is there trying to educate the public? We were bagging on AI a little bit earlier, making fun of chat GPT. But that's not the way the winds are blowing. The January 14th edition of New Scientist magazine has the following astonishing news piece. Under the headline, AI will advise a defendant in court, the subheadline points out that an artificial intelligence is set to tell a defendant what to say during a court case over a speeding fine. It is likely to be the first case defended by an artificial intelligence, reports Matthew Sparks. I must quote from this. It starts out noting an artificial intelligence is set to advise a defendant in court for the first time ever. The AI will run on a smartphone and listen to all speech in a courtroom in February before instructing the defendant on what to say via an earpiece. The location of the court and names of the defendant are being kept under wraps by Do Not Pay, the company behind the AI. But it's understood the defendant is charged with speeding and will say only what Do Not Pay's tool tells them to via an earbud. The case is being considered as a test by the firm, which has agreed to pay if any fines are imposed. That's according to its founder, Joshua Browder. Now, you should note that Do Not Pay is also offering $1 million to anyone with an upcoming case at the U.S. Supreme Court if they will do the same thing though the details of this are still to be confirmed. Now, of course, Joshua Browder, the, the head of the company, has not been good things to say about this proposal. 
which is kind of what you expect from tech people that stand to make a lot of money from the idea. The piece notes that Do Not Pay was launched in 2015 as a chatbot that provided legal advice on consumer issues, relying heavily on templated conversations. I should note, when we talked earlier about the responses given by ChatGPT, that our AI expert was not convinced that uh, the AI was developing some of this on its own rather than just lifting it somewhere from where it found it. The piece notes the firm started focusing more on AI in 2020, when OpenAI released a public programming interface for people to tap into the abilities of GPT-3, its language processing AI. Browder told the magazine it took a long time to train the do-not-pay AI on the vast amounts of case law needed to make it useful. Do Not Pay's AI app now covers a wider range of topics, including immigration law, and the company claims it has intervened in about 3 million cases in the U.S. and the U.K. And here's the, the paragraph I just love the most out of the entire piece. The AI had to be trained to stick to factual statements rather than saying whatever it could to win a case, regardless of truth. Now, while that, that, that seems to us to be perfectly reasonable, we're just not sure how it's going to play in the legal community. As we noted in our previous discussion of chatbots, the tendency to just make stuff up to fulfill the uh, obligations put before it is, is apparently hard for these AIs to resist. Yes, Mr. Milana, I guess that is, you know, just like a lawyer, perhaps. Now, founder Joshua Brown says that AI will probably play a useful role in the legal system in the future, but it would be likely to assist lawyers rather than replace them. I have to say, if you start replacing lawyers, we might finally start to see some meaningful legislation to rein in AI, since a vast percentage of our legislators across the country tend to be lawyers. We sort of think you should be terrified by the whole prospect involved in all of this. And I'll leave it at that. Speaking of matters of law, I have to say that the whole issue of, uh, of, of top-secret documents, Biden versus Trump, was summarized fantastically by a single cartoon. I'm sorry I can't read the name of the cartoonist, but one panel has the title Apples, shows Joe Biden holding a box of classified documents saying, Oops, didn't know I had these. Sorry. The second panel, under the headline Oranges, shows an orange-faced, bad-haired Donald Trump gripping a pile of documents and saying, They're mine, and you can't have them. Apples and oranges, indeed. A meme went out recently in response to some of the conservative efforts to um, make sure the history that's taught American students is uniformly positive. The meme said, let's say it again. Studying history will sometimes disturb you. Studying history will sometimes upset you. Studying history will sometimes make you furious. If studying history always makes you feel proud and happy, you probably aren't studying history. An excellent slap at the right, we think. But how about this from the left? Speaking of history. Evidently, Erica Lopez Prater, an adjunct professor at Hamline University in St. Paul, Minnesota, knew she was on sensitive ground, notes The Week magazine, when she showed her art history class a 14th century painting of the Prophet Muhammad. The New York Times notes that since many Muslims consider it blasphemous to depict Islam's founder, Prater warned in a syllabus that the famous image would be shown. When the class arrived, 
She repeated the warning and said students were free to leave. She then showed the image, notes the New York Times, and lost her teaching gig. A Muslim student complained to administrators, and he was backed by other Muslim students who called the incident, quote, an attack on their religion, unquote. The response was swift. A top administrator called Prater's actions Islamophobic, while Hamline's president said Muslim students need to feel safe outweighed academic freedom. So Prater lost her job. You know, we don't often agree with National Review, but the magazine said this is what happens when 7th century and 21st century illiberalism come together in a gnarly repressive concoction. The submission of Hamline's, quote, woke administrators to the demands of offended students is shameful. They should understand that students' sensitivities do not get to trump the freedom of inquiry that is essential to the mission of an academy. Keith Whittington, writing in Dispatch, said, If respecting students means not offending their sensibilities, then few classrooms in the social sciences and humanities will be safe. Slate noted it's not just conservatives who should be alarmed. Many progressives are understandably protective of Muslims, who are undeniably often mistreated in the U.S. But resisting religious domination in what should be secular space is a core liberal value. In public schools and universities, Christian fundamentalists are banning books and demanding that science classes that teach evolution give equal time to biblical mythology. In the U.S., no secular public institution should ever worry about blasphemy, and no college classroom should be a, quote, safe space, unquote. And you know something else that oughtn't to be? You shouldn't be able to go to South Africa and shoot a lion that was raised in captivity for some jackass to go over and shoot it. The current edition of Smithsonian Magazine has a piece on this. It's a special report to the magazine by Mark Jenkins, which notes that in South Africa, lions are raised in captivity to be killed by hunters, including many Americans. Opponents are outraged, but it notes that advocates, wait, advocates point to conservation benefits. Gee, do you suppose that the guys that are making the money off the operation uh, might have some positive things to say about it? I, I think so. There's some photographs in the piece that are just really disturbing. One shows an early 20th century American businessman, Paul Rainey, documenting his African lion hunts with a photograph he titled, Morning's Work. There's at least nine dead lions in the photograph. The piece notes that Rainey claimed to have killed more than 200 lions using a pack of foxhounds, which one fellow hunter described as just like rat hunting and about as dangerous. Reports that for the Maasai in Kenya, killing a lion with a spear was a rite of passage into manhood until the past decade or so. It notes that even as recently as a century ago, it has been reliably estimated that hundreds of thousands of lions roamed Africa, the Middle East, and India. Today, because of habitat loss and rapid human population growth, only about 20,000 lions are thought to remain in the wild. Another photo shows a protest march taking place in Cape Town, which notes that in South Africa, 65% of the population now says they oppose the practice of captive-bred lion hunting. You know, i got to say, I have a certain amount of respect for killing a lion with a spear. Killing it with a high-powered rifle is not the same thing. This does not reflect well on your manhood or womanhood, as the case may be. All right, another stuff that makes me sick. We have here the obituary of Pope Benedict XVI. He passed away late last year. 
who's what you would call a controversial figure. Very much not the sort of person we here at Radio Parallax find admirable. Why is that, you ask? Well, he spent decades upholding conservative Roman Catholic orthodoxy. He ascended the papacy after 24 years of enforcing Vatican doctrine for Pope John Paul II, which earned him the nickname God's Rottweiler. In that role, and later as Pope, Benedict stood as a bulwark against the Church's modernization, staunchly opposing the ordination of women, condemning contraception, yes, in a world of 8 billion people, the Catholic Church still takes the official position that contraception is wrong, and calling homosexuality an intrinsic moral evil. 8 billion, 8 billion. Now we remind you that as a youth, the future Pope Benedict was a member of the Hitler Youth and was later in the German army. This is, we remind you, during World War II. In 1981, then Pope John Paul II summoned Ratzinger, Cardinal Ratzinger at the time, to head the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, the Vatican's theological watchdog. Ratzinger became a polarizing figure who upheld the church's opposition to reforms and disciplined dissident theologians. This is a guy who in a 2006 speech referenced Islam as an evil and inhuman religion and was condemned by some for his lifting of the excommunication of a bishop who had denied the Holocaust. The man undeniably did a lot of harm and he is no longer here on earth. And while we do have our suspicions of where he might be now, we're we're just not going to go there today. In a piece called Backstory in the first issue of The Economist magazine for this new year, there was a a discussion of the Battle of Stone Mountain. I remember in the 70s when this thing was unveiled and I was sort of disgusted at the uh, honoring of Confederate leaders. And yes, Stone Mountain, Georgia is a vast bas-relief sculpture of Jefferson Davis, the president of the Confederacy, Robert E. Lee, its main general, and Stonewall Jackson, reputedly a clever Confederate general. Turns out this monument was first proposed back in 1914, almost 50 years after the Civil War ended. The museum accompanying the monument apparently has a film available on the web, at least on the museum's website, wherein Sheffield Hale, the boss of the museum, says many Confederate monuments erected in that era were meant to show that the people who had lost the war were now back in charge. They buttressed the Jim Crow segregation regime with public symbols of white supremacy. From the start, this particular memorial was linked to the Ku Klux Klan, which after decades of quiescence was reformed on Stone Mountain, wouldn't you know it, in 1915. The association was deep and enduring, said the magazine. There was talk of including Klansmen in the carving. Its original sculpture, Gutzon Borglum, hightailed it from Georgia after spats, in part relating to the Klan's leadership. Borglum's preliminary work was blasted off the mountainside, and he went on to then carve Mount Rushmore. The project petered out in the Depression, but got revived in the 1950s. The prompt was not Appomattox, but Brown versus Board of Education. Soon after the Supreme Court ruled that segregated schools were unconstitutional, Marvin Griffin ran to be Georgia's governor. He pledged to uphold segregation and finish the memorial. Once elected, he bought the mountain, and surrounding park for the state, calling it a rallying point for all of us who believe in preserving the ideals from which our forefathers fought. Yeah, the Confederacy. The work resumed in 1964, just after the Civil Rights Act was signed. The monument was finished in 1972. 
Well, what should be done about it? It's become a little bit controversial. Stacey Abrams, who ran for Georgia governor in 2022 and had advocated the monument's removal, we say bravo. But Brian Kemp, who beat Stacey Abrams, has vowed to protect the carving, and state law prohibits its alteration. You know, I spent very little time in Georgia as a tourist, and I guess this piece reminds me of why that might be. We mentioned a couple weeks ago about going back into our archives to finding stuff that's still relevant, and unfortunately, here's one from Reuters in 2013 that I'm sure is as relevant today as it. The piece was about how much money they waste at the Pentagon due to the fact that there is no effective means of properly accounting for the vast sums that are shoveled in their direction. Just to grab a couple quotes from the piece. The Pentagon's inefficient method of pursuing efficiency has been on full display in the Army, which, among other efforts, has been building three separate new systems to handle accounting. It launched the Logistics Modernization Program, or LMP, in 1998, with Computer Sciences Corps as a primary contractor. The Global Combat Support System, Army, or GCSS-A, began in 1997 and used Northrop Grumman as a contractor. And the General Fund Enterprise Business System, meant to be the Army's new central accounting system, began in 2005, using Accenture as contractor. These three projects, each overseen by different agencies within the Army, with three different primary contractors, at different times bought licenses to use the same off-the-shelf software package, SAP's Enterprise Resource Planning Package, Each team then modified the software to create its own version to fit specific needs without making sure they work together. It should be noted that despite legal mandates to do so, dating back to at least 1990, the Pentagon has never been audited, which at this point has left about $8.5 trillion, $8.5 trillion taxpayer dollars unaccounted for since 1996. That was the first year it was supposed to be audited. Anyway, the punchline here is the Pentagon has for years kept lousy books with impunity, and I'm sure they will continue to do so because, well, I just have my suspicions that a lot of funds are going where they're not supposed to. Peace notes that bookkeeping has never been a priority for the military. A former senior Pentagon official who was involved in the modernization efforts said, they don't train contracting officers or disbursement officers at West Point. In the prelude to the Q&A to the piece, it was noted the Defense Department typically receives roughly half of annual federal appropriations and has never been audited, noting that if this doesn't change, trillions more of the taxpayers' dollars are at risk of being lost to waste, mismanagement, and fraud. This is the kind of issue that should unite all Americans, and yet we have liberals fighting conservatives, conservatives fighting liberals, and everybody ignoring what's going on over at the Pentagon. We should dredge up our quote from Thomas Pynchon, who noted, if they can get you asking the wrong questions, they don't need to worry about the answers. And we've taken a rather cynical view of some aspects of of, of modern medicine on this program. In particular, we've been somewhat skeptical over the, uh, the widespread use of antidepressants. So I was really taken aback when I saw a a discussion on this topic in The Economist, which admitted, as we've said on this program, that on average, antidepressants were only slightly more effective than a placebo. Here's a stat that really caught me by surprise. Evidently, about 10% of what's described as Western adults, Western adults, take antidepressants, making them one of the world's 
most popular types of drugs. The piece in The Economist said on the surface, their prevalence seems hard to reconcile with the underwhelming evidence of their utility, repeating the fact that for most people, they're only slightly more effective than a placebo and can often induce dependency or inflict unwelcome side effects. I can tell you from uh, having studied the matter that the rate of sexual dysfunction, for example, ED, for some of the SSRIs has a rate of mm, over 70%. I sort of think that would tend to keep you depressed. Anyway, the piece notes that in 2020, the British Medical Journal published a breakdown of the full universe of trials filed with the FDA from 1979 to 2016 and found that placebos replicated most of the pill's benefits. When the dust settled on this, they estimated that perhaps 15% of people got what's described as large benefits from antidepressants independent of the placebo effect. Of course, I'm not sure that's properly factoring in the fact there's a huge publishing bias in all of this. Studies that show that it doesn't work oftentimes don't see the light of day. That's true not just for antidepressants, but for lots of other medications out there. Anyway, we remain highly skeptical, think these drugs are being massively overprescribed, and hope, dear listener, that if you're on them, you consider coming off of them. They were never meant to be drugs you'd take for your entire life. By the way, the premise for which these and other antidepressants are based upon is that people who are depressed lack the normal concentration of neurotransmitters, so-called chemical imbalance theory, which has been found to be pretty much, you know, part smoke, part mirrors, but pretty much not genuine biochemistry. All right, the two minutes I have left, I'm going to lighten the, <laughs> the mood a little bit by pointing out that um, there's apparently a comet in the skies that's going to be visible for the next couple of weeks. If you take binoculars, go out and find the Little Dipper and scan around, it, it ought to pop up. It's apparently going to get brighter than, over the next couple of weeks and will hopefully be visible all over the Northern Hemisphere. Yours truly did travel to the beach last week to take a look at what was reported as the closest new moon in a thousand years. Yes, apparently during the lunar orbit, which of course goes from new moon to full moon and back again every month, this particular new moon coincided better with the closest approach of the moon to the Earth than any other for the last millennia. The result of that was that the high tide was 7.2 feet, which I assure you is a high tide, followed by a low tide of negative 1.8. I'd seen negative 1.7s over the years, but never a negative 1.8. And no, I don't know if we have to wait another thousand years for one to return. Mr. Millen says he is nevertheless marking his calendar just in case. Before we go, I can't resist mentioning the fact that the, the trial for the man who had his feet up on Nancy Pelosi's desk ended in conviction. Conviction for Richard Bingo Barnett. I had to laugh at the summary that reported that his lawyers told the court that Bingo wandered into Pelosi's office suite looking for the bathroom. And no, we have no way of knowing whether that was an AI-assisted defense. This correspondence becoming convinced that the fix is in and Merrick Garland is never going to indict Donald Trump. I hope I'm wrong. I think we'll close by revisiting that quote from H.L. Mencken. In this case, I'm reversing the order. Said Mencken, religion is doing what you're told no matter what is right. Whereas morality is doing what is right no matter what you're told. That pretty much does it. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. 
You've been listening to Radio Parallax. If you've been listening to us courtesy of KDVS and like what you've heard, we'll hope you'll keep that in mind come pledge drive time. We'll see you. Yeah.